I love that Psalm 23 and 4, and thanks for reading back to back, Rodney. The shepherd king, Jesus Christ. And who is this king of glory? I just want to shout out, it's Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you seen him? Mercy and grace, as we've sung here, it's wrapped up in Jesus Christ, and he is indeed a glorious Savior. I want to give you a glimpse of that glory from John chapter 13. I titled this message, The Glory of the Cross. The glory of God is, is revealed, certainly, at this time, at the cross. We're finishing up, we're going through the Gospel of John, and we're finishing up here in chapter 13, and it's a custom that I have. I'll read through the text in its entirety and think through what I'm going to preach on next week at the beginning of the week. And as I started this week, preparation for this week, for this day, what struck me was the command to love one another, often called the 11th commandment, and I thought that's what we would talk about today. But as I read through here and read about this exhortation of Christ to, to love one another as exemplified in his washing of feet, I, I did notice, however, if you look in chapter 13, verse 31 and 32, this passage here, this phraseology in which the word glory is used five times. The repetition piqued my interest a bit. And the phraseology and the wording of it, I, I don't want to go too slow as we go through the Gospel of John, but I don't want to go too fast. And this caused me to pause and to take a, a second glance. I think it's worth the note to pause here. So I want to draw your attention to these two verses, 31 and 32. In context, we'll go ahead and begin at verse 21 when we read the text. And then stop in verse 32. Verse 33 picks up another thought. This is the upper room discourse, really the beginning of it. The twelve disciples are sharing a Passover meal with Jesus. And in great humility, as we've already talked about, he humbled himself, demonstrated that he indeed was a servant, and washed his disciples' feet, all of them, including Judas. He explains to them that this act is not some custom for the church to continue on, but it is something for that time which provided a practical benefit, washing their feet, and also a spiritual truth. Notice the practical benefit by example in verse 14 of chapter 13. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you should you also ought to wash one another's feet. That is, to serve one another in ways that are fitting to your relationship. But the spiritual truth and insight is there as well. If you look at verse 10 back up, Jesus said, and he's doing this also, 
to illustrate something. The one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Completely clean how? In a spiritual way. And he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. He knew Judas was there, and Judas was not spiritually clean. Verse 21 picks up this lesson, so let's begin reading there. After saying these things, all that went before, the washing of the feet and the explanation of what this was to serve one another and the spiritual lesson of spiritual cleansing, after these sayings, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after that, he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself and glorify him at once. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will illumine our hearts that we may see the glory of Christ today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you noticed, just as I read in context here, verse 31 and 32, this repetition of the word glory. Now, glory can be a confusing word at times. It can be a term, term that's just more or less a church term or a religious term that's used with, with not a lot of meaning. The word glory here, the verb form in Greek, means to praise or, or exalt or to honor. In theology, it refers both to an abstract quality of God. God is described in that way externally as light. 
If you read visions of God, it's seen in that manner. In external sense, it's the best that we can say to describe God in that way. But it's also, and most notably and probably most identifiably, associated with God in his internal sense. That's his intrinsic sense in the essence of his character. The beauty of who God is. I often define glory this way. The, the beauty of his divine excellencies or attributes or perfections. God is perfect in every aspect of who he is. Anything that you ever see that is good, lovely, wonderful, those are reflections of who God is. The difference is God is perfect in every one of these. He is holy in, other one, in every one of these. That is, it is a cut above the rest. He is absolutely perfect, and hence the term glory would apply. God is beautiful in that sense, and it's hard to describe beauty, but you know it when you see it. And you have to tell others about it. There's something about it. See a rainbow in the sky and you immediately appreciate the beauty of this refracted light and the colors that are there. And you want to tell someone else, hey, look at that. Or you see a pastel sunset this time of year especially. It's glorious, isn't it? And you invite people to see it. You, you praise it because it's worthy of your view. That's the idea of glory. It shadows the perfection that God is. Judas is mentioned in this story at the very beginning, and he is sent out by Christ. In verse 30, it was night, it says. He's dismissed by the Lord. In this occasion to teach the disciples about the glory of God. No one had an idea of who was going to betray Jesus in just a few hours. But Jesus knew. And he pointed him out. His perfect knowledge of this, by the way, is an expression of his glory. <laughs> he knew. He is sovereign. This is a glimpse of the glory of his triumph ultimately over Satan who fills the heart of Judas. And what does Jesus do in that? He calls him out for who he is and sends him out and it is night. He tells him to go do this quickly and directs him. He dismisses him simply with a word. As Luther would say, the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What is that word? It is the word of Jesus Christ. It's on display here in great glory as he says go. He calls him out as a deceiver, a liar a fraud, a swindler, a betrayer. Jesus calls him out and banishes him from his presence into utter darkness. 
No Antichrist will prevail in the glory of the light of Christ. Judas goes out, verse 31. When he had gone out, now is the Son of Man glorified. This idea of glory, as we'll see, is ultimately pointing to the glory of the cross. John the Apostle, as he's writing this gospel, reflecting really in the prologue to his gospel in verse 14 of chapter 1, reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's thinking about that. John was at the table. He was the one that was leaning on Jesus, to whom Peter asks, who is it that will betray you? That's the apostle writing this letter, and in verse 14 of chapter 1, he will remind us that we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen him? The disciples along the way <clears throat> closely associated with Jesus in the various things that went on saw the glory of Christ in everything he did and everything he said. In John chapter 2, if you remember this miracle at Cana, water into wine, John will remind us that it is here that Jesus did what? He manifested his glory in that miraculous event. But in our text, in verse 31, there is an emphasis on this glory that's a bit different. It says, now is the Son of Man glorified. It isn't that Jesus didn't display his glory prior to this moment, but rather now is, an, is a time for an unprecedented display of his glory, and particularly it will be the glory of the cross. In the present, it will be his passion, his suffering, if you will, on this cross. It is at hand. It is just a few hours away at the time of this speaking here in the upper room. The glory of the cross is also a fulfillment of all that went before. All the promises of God are fulfilled in this hour. And finally, the power of God in Christ will be demonstrated through this cross in the procurement of a future glorious kingdom. Let's look at that in our text. First, the present day, the glory in Christ's passion on the cross. If you notice in verse 31, it the title is given, actually. It says, Son of Man. And most of your English translations, it should be capitalized in that way, and it is. Son of Man. This is a messianic title in this context. Now, the term Son of Man, it's in and of itself, particularly from a Hebrew perspective, is not anything in particular. Remember, uh, Judas is the, it mentions his son. He's the son of, right? Simon of Iscariot. This would have been a typical way that they might have phrased things. And if you read the Hebrew Bible, 
the Old Testament, you'll find this phrase, son of man, mentioned a number of times. About a dozen times in the Old Testament in various places, it it simply refers to a human being. And so it can be a term that means mankind. Interesting enough, if you did search on that phrase, son of man, in the Old Testament, in addition to the 12 to 14 times that it's mentioned in other books, over 90 times it's mentioned in a single book. It's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet called by God to go to his people to preach repentance. And he does so through great teaching and parables. But the people will not hear. They are stiff-necked. They will not hear a word, he says. And that phrase, son of man, as God tells the prophet, do this, son of man, do this, do that, that they will not hear. And he goes on and on. Ninety times, over ninety times. I think it's about ninety-three in that prophetic message. There it's used as a foreshadowing of the Son of Man who will come. He will come to his own people and his own people will not receive him. He gives a message of truth and repentance and they will shut their ears. Ezekiel foreshadows that. He is a type of Christ in that regard. Christ comes on the scene and he is the fulfillment of it or the anti-type. He is the true son of man to whom the prophets pointed to. He comes to his own. Even now at this present time he comes to his own to preach. He is the king of glory. There are other times in the Old Testament, specifically Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where it does mention this second use of this idea of Son of Man, not only associated with humanity, but also divinity and specifically a messianic title. Daniel 7.13, I'll read it for you as he gets a vision. Behold, he says, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Here is a picture of God the Father. And here is somebody else identified as the Son of Man who comes. And to him, that is to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. And his kingdom will be one that will not be destroyed. He's pointing to a future glorious kingdom. Here it is, the two persons of the Trinity, ancient of days, the Father and the Son, called the Son of Man. No wonder. This is Jesus' favorite self-description. He calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man portrayed by Ezekiel, the Son of Man, prophesied by and the vision of Daniel. And Jesus incorporates that title to describe himself. The Gospels are replete with that terminology, the Son of Man, at least 30 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, and 25 times in Luke. But we're in John. And John mentions it too. 
In John's close association, I want to walk you through it. So turn back to 151, and we'll do this really fast if you can hang in there with me, but it'll be just John. I just want you to glance at the pages of Scripture as John the Apostle uses this terminology to see how it's associated with Christ. John is declaring his deity when he uses the term Son of Man. It is a messianic title. 51 of chapter 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on him, the Son of Man. Here is a prophetic vision of the connection that you might have with God the Father. It is through the, this Son of Man. In chapter 3, flip over, in verse 13, Jesus explains that that no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. That is whom? The Son of Man. It's a title of deity. Verse 14. And so Christ is going to be lifted up, that is, crucified. It is portrayed by Moses when he lifted up the servant in the wilderness. And so who? The Son of Man must be lifted up to provide atonement. Chapter 5 and verse 27. It is this Son of Man who is given authority to do what? Execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. In other words, because he is God incarnate. 627. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And how will you get that? It is that which the Son of Man will give to you. For God the Father has put his seal on him. 6.53 Jesus explains and he says, Amen, Amen. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. 6.62 What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's talking about his final ascension to where he was before. What? This is God incarnate. It is the title of deity. 8.28 When you have lifted up the Son of Man, and this is a phraseology which means crucified, then you will know what? That I am am he. That is, that is, he is Yahweh. He is God incarnate. Who? Who is God incarnate? The Son of Man. 9.35 Jesus heard that they had cast him out. He's speaking about the blind man, if you remember. And he asks them, do you believe in whom? The Son of Man. Do you believe in God incarnate. Chapter 12 and verse 23. He hints at the time of his glory and he says it is now that the hour has come for the Son to be of man to be glorified. The hour he's speaking of is the hour of his death. He's pointing to it. And then in verse 34 they 
question that because how could the Son of Man, in other words, Christ, the Messiah, God incarnate, die? They think he remains forever, verse 34. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And then he asks this question. Who is the Son of Man? He's the one we just read about in the Psalm 23, the King of Glory. That's who this Son of Man is. God incarnate. The last time this phrase is used is in our text, verse 31. It is the last time John will use it in his gospel because he says, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. The now is the cross. This cross of suffering and shame will be a sign of glory. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I mean, why is it in Christianity that we would use this symbol? At that time, it would have been a symbol of great shame. The, the Hebrews would have known that cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, and yet we hold it up as a great symbol of glory. How is the Son of Man glorified? How does this cross point to his glory? Well, when I read that text and noticed the repetition of the word glory, it did intrigue me. I tried to find what others might have said about it. I read a great sermon by James Boyce. And then I think I found the source where James got his sermon from, which was A.W. Pink's commentary. So I will use both of them to help me shape how I will explain, because I think they did a good job at explaining the glory of the cross. And that is the present glory of the cross that, that will now come about. Why is it so glorious? Number one, the cross is the greatest work in history. There is no greater. Prior to the cross, everything pointed to this day, this now. All of the law, all of the prophets, all of the writings, that is the wisdom literature, the Psalms, they all spoke of this day, of a Messiah who would be hung on a tree. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we men hide their faces. He was despised, we, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed and stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But, and here's the glory part, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. A great cross for which history pointed to is a cross to which history now looks back on since it is finished. And Paul would tell the church at Galatia in 6.14 of his letter, Be it far from me that I should boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The word boast here in the Greek is not like the English word which includes the idea of pride. Instead, the idea is praise in boasting here in Galatians. That, that is his praise. That is the honor. That is his glory. Looking backwards as Paul is to the completed cross. The second aspect in the glory of the cross, this present hour in which Jesus will die, it reverses the, the conduct of the first Adam. And for that I invite you, if you want to, look at Romans 5.17 briefly. Which explains this. The cross not only is the greatest work in history, but it also reverses the curse, the fall of Adam, if you will. 5.17 of Romans, Paul describes, For if because of one man's trespass, he's speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He reversed the curse. James Boyce in his sermon illustrates this idea. He said, when Adam decided to disobey God, it was as if he fell over a cliff carrying the whole string of his descendants with him. Imagine a group of mountain climbers working their way up the side of a mountain. They're all roped together. Adam's the lead. Adam loses his footing and falls. Because of the rope, every one of the climbers is pulled over the edge of the cliff after Adam. The whole race follows him. But there at the end of the line, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stands fast. Because the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't succumb to temptation, because the Lord doesn't sin, because he is therefore able to offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for human sin. And he does so. He becomes the only stable and safe point of humanity. And consequently, those who are united to him by faith are saved by him. The fall of Adam, which led to destruction, is reversed in Jesus Christ by his atonement. And Jesus leads those who are his to safety. Number three, the cross pays the ransom price to bring many sons to glory. Let me read you a couple of passages of Scripture. Hebrews 
2.10, it was fitting that he for whom, by whom all things exist, that is Christ, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those that are sanctified have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. It is this ransom price that Christ pays to bring many to glory. John will say in his epistle, in 1 John 2, he says, I'm writing these things, beloved, so that you wouldn't sin. But you know what? If you do, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is that? It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is the covering, that is the payment, that is the atonement. And not just for us right here, it is for the whole world. That is for everyone who will repent and believe on Jesus Christ. He will bring many sons to glory. Fourth, the cross destroys the work of the devil. This is the reason why the Son of God does appear. John again will say in his epistle in chapter 3, The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. The preacher of Hebrews will put it this way in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There's great glory in the cross. Not only the greatest work of human history. It reverses the curse of Adam. It brings many sons to glory and absolutely destroys the works of the devil. But notice back at our text here, it says the Son of Man certainly is glorified, and those are some aspects of his glory on this cross of shame. But it also, note here, it says that God is glorified in him. God is glorified. How is God glorified? Well, many ways. Again, I'll allow A.W. Pink to give us five categories that I think are helpful, and I'll explain them. How is God glorified? Well, this looks to the past. God would otherwise be called a liar if the cross doesn't occur. The cross fulfills all those promises made. They're all kept. And so God is, is glorified in him. Number one, because of the power of God that is on display. In his ministry and most notably in his final days, Jesus was confronted, if you remember, as we've gone through the Gospel of John with angry mobs. Angry mobs who wanted to take him by force and kill him on the spot. And what would Jesus do? He would just simply walk through the midst. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can I help you out? That's the power of God on display. That's the glory of God on display to fulfill. All of the mobs against him, he just vanishes from their view. The political leaders of the day, they attempted to arrest him, but it wasn't time. It was to no avail. They, if you remember, they dispatched some people to go out and get him. 
And the guards come back and say, they ask him, well, where's Jesus? They said, well, no one has ever spoke like this man. (laughs) They got caught up in hearing the words of Christ. He reminded his disciples all along the way when those attempts were made, it's simply this, it's not his hour. But now is. The principalities and powers of both the material world and the immaterial world were no match for the power of God. Jesus would explain in John 10, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority. That's the power. The power to lay it down. And I have the power, the authority, to take it up again. At any moment... He could have called legions of angelic beings, which are warriors, to come. But he goes to this cross of shame, despises it that God would be glorified. The power of God is displayed in the orchestration of all the free choices of men who aligned against him to fulfill what he has promised and planned to take place from all eternity. This day, the cross. Secondly, the justice of God is on display. God is glorified in the justice. It's a tough thing, and perhaps we don't think clearly enough about it. But in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 7, It stated that that God will by no means clear the guilty. And that's understandable. If you had a guilty person standing before you and you were the judge and you just cleared him, let him go, now that guy might be happy and his family might be happy, but how about the people injured? How will they be happy and satisfied? How is that justice? To clear the guilty. To just provide some pardon. God does something unique that is glorious to satisfy justice for all. (laughs) Truly justice. I'll read it for you in Romans 3 and you can turn if you'd like. Romans 3.25 How does God satisfy this dilemma to, to free the To clear the guilty? Well, he just doesn't clear them. Here's what he does. Romans 3.25, God put forth as a propitiation, that is a payment in full, a covering by his blood, who? Christ's blood, to be received by faith. Why does he do this? He does this to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God is not going to clear the guilty, just throw it away and pretend it didn't happen. Sweep it under the rug. No, it's still there. He's not going to do that. That's the idea of this propitiation, that it is an actual payment. It is an actual cleansing. It's a satisfaction of that injustice, if you will. God must do this. Why? In verse 26 of chapter 3 in Romans, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of who? The one who he has faith in Jesus. 
This is a remarkable thing that cannot be compared in any other way. I know people try to illustrate this in various forms and fashions, like somebody pays my debt and therefore it's taken care of. Well, the problem is, I didn't, my debt really didn't get paid by, by me, and uh, I still may have caused problems to other people, and it was nice that some other person came by to take care of my debt. What God does is what no one else can do. He imputes the sin onto Christ, on his body, on that cross, that tree. He actually lays it on him. This is something that nobody else could do, but God does. He actually takes my guilt and actually puts it on Christ. And then he dies on the cross, satisfying the justice of God. And God remains perfectly holy. He doesn't just clear the guilty The guilty have their sins atoned for, paid for, by Jesus Christ. Do you remember? He dies on the cross. His blood is shed. It propitiates for sin. Jesus actually does bore the sin. And that is why Paul can say, there is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if you're not in Christ Jesus, your sin will not be cleared. And it just won't be cleared anyway. It has to either be propitiated, paid for, atoned for by Christ, or by you. Make your choice. God's justice will be satisfied because that's the third thing. He is absolutely holy. He is of purer eyes than to look on evil. He can't look on iniquity. And so how would he take some sinner into his presence? Because Christ was made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 And on the cross, as we continue to read, we'll see that the Holy One, as Pink writes... The thrice holy one turned away from him. It was this which caused the agonizing Savior to cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Never did God manifest his hatred of sin as in the suffering and death of his only begotten. There he showed it was impossible for him to be at peace with that which would raise his defiant head against him. All the honor due to the holiness of God, all the holy angels, and all the cheerful obedience and patient suffering of all holy men who have ever existed or ever will exist are nothing in comparison with the offering of Christ himself in order that every demand of God's holiness, which sin had outraged, might be fully met. The faithfulness of God is also glorified. Jesus had constantly, if you remember, talked about the scriptures being fulfilled. They're fulfilled here in the cross. And God is faithful to his promises. Way back in Genesis, it will say, in the curse on Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise 
your head and you will bruise his heel. The bruising of the heel is the cross. Christ will be bruised for our transgression. But in that, as I mentioned before, the head of Satan will be crushed. There is a fatal blow. The final one to come. All of these promises are fulfilled and God is faithful. Abraham looking forward to this day, teaching his son about it, trusting by faith when God asked him to sacrifice his son, his response was, God will provide for himself a lamb. And God does it this day. And finally, God is glorified in the display of which you could tell is love. It's not a sentimental, superficial type of love. I think it's helpful to understand love in two major categories, grace and mercy. The gift of Christ is grace. And the mercy is not giving you what you deserve. What you deserve right now, beloved, is death. The soul that sins will die. There's none righteous, no, not one. Christ demonstrates this love, fulfills it. Paul would write in Romans 5 and verse 6, why we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that why we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God on display. Let's go back to our text and I'll finish with this. Verse 32 of John 13 I think can be difficult. We can understand the Son of Man being glorified there at the cross. God being glorified and fulfilling all these promises. But here you have this phraseology that might be a little more troubling to understand. It says, if God, verse 32, is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The tense of these verbs for glory change from a completed action, the first three, that's the aorist tense, to a future tense here. But you can't see it in the English as easy, but the idea is, it says, you see at least in English you'll see God will glorify, right? That's the idea, trying to convey this future aspects. God is glorified and God will glorify. What's he talking about? This future glory comes after this crucifixion takes place. It includes all the aspects of what will come next. The resurrection, that's glorious. The resurrected body that can now... A human body that can now exist in both the domain of the terrestrial and celestial, heaven and earth, material and immaterial. You know, 40 days, Jesus was only here talking to folks that you'll find in Scripture on the Lord's Day. Where was the rest of the time? 
Uh, most people assume that there was this back and forth. That it's an easy existence. Here you have a material man, the son of man, who also exists immaterially. That's a, that's a glorious state called a glorified body. Paul talks about it in detail in, Rome, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He, he says it's, it corresponds with the current physical body, and yet it is different. And it's different in that way. The glory of his ascension beyond that, and then the glory of his current status at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus will pray to that end, and he says in John 17 to, to praise to the Father and says, glorify me with the glory that I had within your own presence. That, that's the idea. Our text says he will glorify him at, at, at once. All of this, boom, happens immediately. Paul will describe Christ's unique status in Philippians 2. We've read it before. I'll read it in your hearing again. He's found in the form of man. He humbles himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, completion of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it's looking forward to. Jesus Christ is Lord. And beloved, that's the state that he's in right now. A glorious state. And he will come again. John will write about this in the book of Revelation. In describing the glorious state in which Jesus is in, he says in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those whom pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth and will wail and on account of him, even so. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, Almighty. That's who he is. I want you to look at him from the book of Revelation. I promise I'll finish on this. Revelation 22. The glory of the cross displays the intrinsic glory of God. We've talked about it. His faithfulness, his, his love, his power. All these attributes... But the coming glory of Christ, I would say that it's really speaking of the beauty of his essence, that is his external glory. It's the glory of the Lord, not just what he has done on the cross, but who he actually is. And is blessed for those who actually do look at him and confess him as Lord. Here's how the angel 
explains this to John, this same John the Apostle in our Gospel of John in Revelation 22. The angel shows me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the who? The Lamb. Again, get the picture. He's showing you something beautiful and can describe it one way, bright crystal, sea light, if you will. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on the either side of the river, a tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will give him glory. This is the response that you would have if you saw something glorious. You can't help it. If you saw a great play in sports, which we don't have very many sports these days, but anyway, you remember what it was like. If you saw some beautiful accomplishment, some Olympic athlete achieving something, Somebody catching a touchdown and it's your team and it wins the game. It is glorious and you respond. No one has to tell you to praise, to worship, if you will. You see it. And that's what's going here. They'll see it. There will be no accursed thing in it. Remember, all the works of the devil are destroyed. And his servants then, then, then will naturally worship him. It, it isn't a time of boredom. This is a time of great excellency. His perfections, if you will, are, are new every day. They'll never run out. I used to say, and I guess I'll still say it, this is what I call an eternal jaw drop. <gasps> the difference is you'll be fitted with A new body that will be able to enjoy the presence of God's perfections in a new way. You'll have to have a glorified body to stand in the presence and see the glory of God. But this is his external glory that you see. More than just what he has done is who he is. They will, verse 4, see his face. See, In his presence, the psalmist would say, is fullness of joy. This is what the believer gets. They will be in a glorified state and see the glory of Christ. They will see his face for the first time. And your response is great worship. Great joy like you've never experienced before. Everything else is forgotten. This is what is focused on. There will be a night will be no more. That's where Judas was cast out. It was night. That's where the devil was cast out. It is night. There's no night here anymore. And they don't even need a lamp. Or a sun. We think that's the source of light. It's Christ who made everything. And from his lips he says, let there be light. And boom, there was light. Because he is light. That's a way to describe him. This is the external glory of Christ. And that's what you're seeing there. You don't need any artificial way of light anymore. Because here you have the fullness of the glory of Christ. The Lord God will be their light.
and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that to some degree we will get a glimpse of your glory. The great glory of the cross fulfilling all the promises that you have made. They have all been kept. Those of the future are just assured because the cross. What a great display of love, mercy, and grace. The sacrifice of Christ. We long to behold him. And I pray that we would prioritize our life reflecting on the past, the present, and the future and the glory of Christ. May he be truly our light. May we reign with the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Take a moment briefly, beloved, and think on these things. Take a moment now, respond to Christ as the way he's spoken to you. If you don't know him, repent and believe right now. Do you want to know him? Put your trust in him. Take a moment now.